Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Every new year, there's pressure to work out, and it stops people from even starting. But starting is what matters most. So Peloton's made starting easy with up to $600 off Peloton bike purchases and two months free membership. Start moving with the Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, Tread, Row, or Guide, and thousands of classes with instructors ready to support you from day one. Shop Peloton's New Year offers at onepeloton.com deals. All access membership separate. Terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This week's episode is brought to you by The Story is a State of Mind School. Early registration is now open for The Story Intensive, an amazing course happening this fall, all about craft and brilliant writing, offered by the one and only Sarah Selecki, who you all know as a repeat guest on the show. Find out how you can sign up for the course and request me as your TA at carolinedonahue.com story. There will also be some group coaching calls for those who sign up through me and other fun stuff going on over there. So again, the link to check that out is carolinedonahue.com story. Okay, now on with the show. This is episode 59. My guest this week is Jay Ryan Stradal who is the author of Kitchens of the Great Midwest, which was published by Viking Pamela Dorman Books on July 28, 2015. It reached the New York Times hardcover bestseller list at number 19 on its third week of release. It's been voted the Indie Choice Book of the Year Award, Adult Debut Winner, and the Midwest Independent Booksellers Association awarded it the 2016 Midwest Booksellers Choice Award for the year's top fiction book. And in October 2016, the Southern California Independent Booksellers Association also named Kitchens the year's top novel. So clearly, everybody was pretty into Kitchens of the Great Midwest. So I was thrilled to talk to Jay Ryan about the process of writing a book that everyone loved. But in addition to that, I wanted to talk to him about the themes of food that run through his writing and how that is played out. And in addition to that, I was really pleased to be able to talk to him at this point in time because he wrote Kittens of the Great Midwest several years ago and it came out in 2015. So now he is kind of neck deep in his second novel and being able to talk about a book while in progress kind of continues the theme from last week where we're starting to explore what books are like when you're inside the process of one. So I really enjoyed talking to Jay Ryan about about the book, 
that has been and that we all know and can access, but also the book that is still coming into creation um, and that he's in the process of writing. And I'm really looking forward to having him back once that book is finished. So here we go with episode 59. Hey, Jay Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I know this doesn't really have anything to do with writing directly, but I think you're the only guest we've had who has an initial as part of their name. <laughs> so when I met you, everyone called you Jay Ryan. And I was like, that's very cool. And I wanted to know what the J stands for. And I find out it's just a J. That's right. My parents named me J period Ryan Straddle. That's pretty. Weir- weirdos. Yeah. It's pretty baller, I have to say. Yeah, yeah they were you... 25. What do they know? Yeah. Well, have you enjoyed <laughs> that? Or has it been have jerks like me been so. asking about it? The whole time. Oh, no, it's it separates me from the Jays and the Ryans of the world. So I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few other Jay Ryans out there. Really? Yeah, there's a graphic designer in Chicago who makes really great concert posters. And uh, the, the keyboardist of a band called Six Finger Satellite is named Jay Ryan. Amazing. So have you all met? Tri- I've never met either of them. I'd love to have a Jay Ryan convention sometime. I think you should write a book. And then the graphic designer could do the cover, and then you could Ooh. have kind of a, a book launch with the musician playing, right? Right. Oh, that'd be wonderful. This is yeah, this yeah. is great. Score the book, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. You could have like a soundtrack that goes with it. I'm really into great. Have so a this... CD that fits in the back. Yeah. I want to come to this party. <laughs> okay, so no, no pressure. You obviously have the longest project portion of the book. Like, just write a book casually, and then everybody else can do the poster and. Yeah, yeah. No big deal. I'll get right on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very excited to talk to you also because you have written a novel, Kitchens of the Midwest, that is so intricately connected to food. And as as are many people, I am obsessed with food. So I wanted to talk about the process of writing about food in a fictional context. Wow. Well, I'm preoccupied with food. I love writing about it. I'm writing about it now, too, with my second book. I tried not to write about it, but (laughs) (sighs) it's Al Pacino and Godfather Part 3 all over again. I feel like I'm just drawn to it. And it's so topical. Yes. I think as Americans, our relationship with food has really evolved. Uh, Certainly in my lifetime and particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, my next book focuses on beer, which oh, is probably, wow. yeah, that's an American beverage I feel has evolved the most Definitely. in a lot of different ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, just in the 21st century. So that's been fun to research. But once again, one of those topics that no matter how I write about it, it will be insufficient. Like I can't possibly cover all the angles or fill in as many of the gaps in history or tell as many of the stories related to beer as I'd like. So just kind of choose one of them and run with it and try not to make it too myopic. You know, try to tell a somewhat universal story that is still, um, you know, specific and human. But as someone who, you know, grew up in Minnesota and is preoccupied with um, Midwestern food and drink and now lives in California and it's robust and agile agricultural realm. <laughs> I feel like it's it's easy to write about food. It 
it's like in both places I've lived, it's been um, really front and center in my life. And I feel like I'm just kind of following that muse. Yeah, I wondered if the food, I'm like, the, the love of food had to come at the same time, or, or if not before, than the, the relationship with the characters. Because I, I don't know, I think I love, I mean, I love all the characters. They're so human, I think. I mean, it's well, a strange you. thing to say, but I mean, I think <laughs> the food list of, of what he wants to feed his child at like day one, and <laughs> my brother just had his second child a kid who we're all calling HH, actually, interestingly, with initials. But, and I'm just imagining this baby being presented with pork shoulder and, and other such items, you know, right from the get go, or at least I think he was given what, like two, three weeks before he got to the pork shoulder? Right, right. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, he caved. I think he was told two years and he caved, I think, like at six to eight. Six to eight weeks, something like that. And he's like, I'm just going to puree it, you know. He was like, that would be okay. I liked how there were little moments where he was nervous and there were like question marks. Like, maybe. Um, <laughs> and he was like, maybe maybe smells would be okay, you know. And um, right, right, right. it's just, it's so sweet, his dedication to this, to the food and, and how desperately he wants it for her and how that kind of continues into her life. And um I love that about it. But it's just like the the food is a character almost as well as sort of the backdrop in the setting. Yeah, certainly. I feel like I tried to tell a story w that was commensurate with the evolution of our relationship to food and the explosion of food consciousness and availability in our own culture that I had Eva be born around a time that things started to evolve and her maturation is you know, corresponds with this evolution. So that said, I didn't want her to be a wholesale rejection of the food world I was born into because there's still a lot I like about it. And there's a lot I like about the uh, ethos around it. It was very cozy. All of that. Yeah, like the, yeah. The hot dish and the whole thing. Right, and the... right, right. And it was also a, a matter of, doing the best with what you had, making the best out of what was in season or what was available. Uh, it's easy to forget now in the comparatively flush world we live in today that for most of American human existence and still many places around the world, a variety of food just isn't available. You can't get avocados or blueberries when you want them. You know, I don't remember seeing things like avocados growing up. Um, occasionally we'd get some kind of pureed guacamole that was pretty far from its source. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, I felt like I grew up in a world where, although I was intrigued by food I'd heard about that I wasn't exposed to, I was pretty happy with what we had. And when it was sweet corn season, you know, or the First tomatoes came into season or it was apple season. You know, when when the times of year that suited one particular type of food came around, I was excited about that. It helped mark the passage of time and it made one excited for food circumscribed within a particular you know, realm of time and as part of a, a ritual or a, a tradition. 
yeah, all the way up through deer hunting and fishing and that kind of stuff too. The, the fact that there are seasons for these things is kind of wonderful. It is. And I think even though technology has gotten us away from it, I think that, you know, you see this in LA where we can have pretty much whatever we want, whenever we want. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, going to the farmer's market, it's, uh, it reminded me of it when they were talking about like, who could possibly sell rhubarb at this time of year, <laughs> you know? And it, it just, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm at the Hollywood farmer's market when you like make a mistake and ask for something at the wrong time of year. And they look at you like you've murdered a child or something <laughs> like, oh, you want stone fruit now? You know, right. that's just right. appalling. But, um. But it is, it, it, it does give a season, even in a seasonless place, which I can see as something that would be really appealing to engage with. Yeah, and it's nice to know that we're still enthralled to something, that not all aspects of nature are under our control. That although, you know, most of what we have in regards to things like tomatoes, which we talked about a bit before we started recording today, are genetically engineered to be consistent and fruitful in terms of being prolific growers. The type of tomato that you see most often in the grocery store is, to me, the, it's far from a tomato as a skateboard is from a semi-truck. There's wheels, and that's about it. I feel like the availability of food is not always kind to the food or kind to us, that I think in, the, in an awful lot of cases we'd be better served through scarcity and through obeying the seasons in which a food wants to grow and wants to thrive. I agree. I mean, so I'm curious about how all of this thought about food translated into a novel. Because mm. I think of, you know, something like Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle, where she and her family ate locally for a year, and she wrote that whole book about it, which was fascinating and talked a lot about these topics, but you looked at this topic, which I think most people go into kind of memoir, waxing poetic, I cooked this bread, it changed my life, kind of whatever. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've enjoyed those books, so I don't mean to sound sure. you know, super dismissive, but but to take that and then to go, you know what, I'm going to put this into fiction. How, how did it start with food and end up being fiction? Well, it was never not fiction. I've been a fiction writer my whole life, and I think I've been writing about food in my fiction most of that time. Not all my stories are about food, but it is a common subject that appears in my fiction. Uh, yeah, and so to me, I felt like when I sat down to write this novel, I was just continuing to obey that impulse. Um, I had the idea for this book for the first time, I think in about 2009 or so, and I started writing it in 2013. Um, while still working a day job, writing in the morning and every Saturday. And when I first started writing it, I knew what the ending was. Mm. And so I started kind of far away from that ending in terms of where that character would be, where Eva, my protagonist, would be. And I put her, um, put her in grade school. And the first chapter I wrote that ended up making the book was, well, it ended up being chapter two of the book. I didn't write chapter one till near the end until I understood what novel my first chapter would be setting up. And I might do that again this time. As of right now, I'm working on what I think is the fourth version of my second book. I've been working on it for two and a half years and it keeps changing. But uh, in terms of kitchens, yeah, I knew I was going to tell the story of a chef and the story of a dinner party 
and how the ingredients and the people came together at that dinner party. So I basically needed to assign an ingredient to a character and populate the book with chapters based around those characters and how they knew my protagonist. So with that structure in mind, it was pretty easy to write. I wish I'd come up with a conceit quite so simple this time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, That said, uh, knowing I was writing about food ahead of time made my inclination to write about food a lot easier to obey, uh, knowing I didn't have to fight it. Yeah, I mean, it it works. And I think it's, you know, if you're just like, I'm a fiction writer who has a lot of food in it, you know, then that's just the way it is. It's like, why? Why is that exceptional? That's just how I write. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's not an unusual topic for me. And so when people asked me to talk about, oh, why did you choose food? It felt like, hmm, well, it's what I like to write about. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good yeah. reason to choose it. So yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, I love writing about food. I know you're still in the middle of it. But okay, so you're on what you think is your fourth version of your second book, and it keeps changing. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. can you talk about what's changing about it? I'm. It's becoming simpler, which is good. That is helpful, I assume. Yeah, in the last week or so, I've pared it down from 18 chapters to 10. And I've pared down the point of view characters from 8 to 4. So the book's basically been cut in half. Wow. But not not exactly. I wish it were that simple. A lot of things have to be changed and moved around for this all to make sense. But uh, I felt like the last version of the book... As I told my editor, I said, uh, I built a deli so I could eat a sandwich. And (laughs) yeah, there's a sandwich in here somewhere. And I think I found it. I think I chose the half of the book that's the sandwich. It's certainly certainly the 10 chapters that comprise the next version of the book are the 10 chapters that go together the best in terms of feeding off each other and feeding into each other. I think in some ways, don't we always create a deli though to make a sandwich Mm -hmm. in terms of creating a fictional world it's like there's so much that you think about that's outside the borders of the book yeah i i certainly do can can you think of a book that um as far as you know was a book that was called out of a much larger mass (laughs) and uh and if so have you read any of the things that were cut out of that book or you know if they're available I would love to. I don't know if you, this is the thing is you never get access to it. Often you don't. Yeah. You don't often get versions of books and I wish they did. I wish they did do this where you'd get like a, you know, let's say a version of, I don't know, Ulysses. Well, maybe that's not a great example, but I'd like to think of something a little more quotidian or, or contemporary. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe something like uh, all the light we cannot see, you know, by Anthony or, like, wouldn't it be cool if they did a 20th anniversary edition of that book, you know, in 18 years, 17 years that uh, had all the outtakes or all the <laughs> all the chapters that didn't make the book or earlier versions of chapters and much of the same sense in which uh, like a greatest hits album or a compilation uh, or 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 something like uh, OK, Not OK by Radiohead that just came out this <laughs> It has a whole second album of outtakes from OK Computer and different versions of songs and so on. Like, you know, why can't they do that for uh, for novels? I think that'd be kind of fun to see alternate versions of chapters, earlier drafts, chapters that were cut out for one one reason or another and get sort of this unpurged 
unabridged version of the novel or like this is the the realm from which that novel was summoned uh probably the closest thing i can think of to that off the top of my head would be um the pale king by david foster wallace which right you know was published before wallace intended you know is it was, it was a, it's an unfinished novel and so as such you really kind of see the scaffolding of the way Wallace wrote in reading that book. I It was instructive to read that book, having read Infinite Jest. And, you know, you look at Pale King and you go, oh, wow, okay. I can see how a book like Infinite Jest came together, having read Pale King. But I wish we had that opportunity with more authors sometimes. I know some of us, I've done this. I did this with Kitchens. I published a, a chapter that didn't make the cut of Kitchens as a short story. And oh, so it was alone. one that didn't cut. Okay. Because yeah, as you yeah. were talking, I was thinking like, well, number one, I've been dying for this for years, but like no writer, including me, is willing to put their work out there when they're not ready. Because we all have right. this fear that somebody's going to steal our work away before we're ready and like show it to everybody and everyone's going to laugh. Or maybe I'm just right. talking about my own fear. But it's... Yeah. But I, me, I think a lot of writers have that fear. And, and I... I feel like, wow, I wish I had ideas that were that good. <laughs> right? And then, but you yeah, think yeah, about yeah, music. Stolen. Oh, yeah. yeah. When you think about music, it's yeah. It's like B-sides. They're t- perfectly happy. They're like, oh, we're churning out songs all day. Who cares? We just got to pair them down, you know, like something like you're talking about with Radiohead. Like, yeah. why don't we think of things that get cut out of books like B-sides? And right. maybe if we saw them that way, we'd be more willing to share them. And I think, you know, writers are also perfectionists quite often. Definitely. But... Doesn't Raymond Carver have multiple versions of stories? You know, like he was one guy that, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of writers that probably do this, but Carver comes to mind where over the years he never quit tinkering with stories. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm not enough of a Carver scholar to answer this question, answer my own question here, but in some published volume is there a collection of all the different versions of some of his stories that saw the light over the years. You know, you because you see that in every author's, uh, what's the word, like disclaimer or whatever, at the beginning of, the, of, of a short story collection, that like portions of this book have appeared in other forms, you know, in these locations and so on. Like, oh, like, yeah, let's see these back to back sometime. I'd be yes. curious to, you know, to put these together and see what these other forms were and maybe even have those stories go consecutively in a collection so we can, so those of us who are curious and you know, want some insight into this writer's process or our own process. Could learn a little bit about how this story evolved and perhaps even notes from the editor or the writer herself or himself as to why it evolved. Yeah. I mean, why not just B-sides, but also liner notes, you know? Exactly. B-sides and liner notes is what we need. The only one I can think of that comes close, there are Mm. two things I'm thinking of. One is that Michael Chabon um, put that thing out in... McSweeney's did an edition, like, I think it was over 10 years ago, but it was a book that he didn't end up publishing, that he tried to write for a number of years right before Wonder Boys and abandoned it ultimately. And then he ended up publishing four, I think it's about four, I think it's called The Fountain, maybe? It was going to be called The Mm. Fountain. And then he ended up writing Wonder Boys and had a character in it who had struggled with a novel for years and couldn't finish it. You know, and I think <laughs> so. It ended up not being a total waste, but he shared it with his thoughts on how it didn't work and why it didn't work and why he abandoned it. But the thing is, you can only find the thing 
I have requested it from the library because I'm dying to look at it. But then mm -hmm. if you want to get it, you go on and it's only available like on Amazon, that issue for like $150. Oh, forget it. Damn. Yeah, right? Because I'm like, why can't we have, come on McSweeney's, could we have a copy of that maybe that yeah. we could just buy because there are all of us who want to read this. Yeah. I mean, maybe McSweeney should also issue like an anniversary edition with annotations and we yeah, additional notes. Yeah. We need to you ask know, them for this. Mentioning McSweeney's brought up to mind. I think Dave Eggers did put out a later version of a staggering work that mm -hmm. included errata and corrections and additional notes and so on. I'm not sure if it's, if it's exactly what we're talking about here, but I think it's pretty close. Yeah, I think those later updates would approach it. And the other one is like if you look at something like Murakami and then mm. read something like um, Sputnik Sweetheart you know, which is so early in the game. And then you think about, you know, his later books and I can see like, okay, I see where he was going. This book is like one tenth the length and mm. you can see where he's going early on, but it is already a finished book. You're not seeing the same version of the same book, which is I think what we're going for. Mm -hmm. I think it's just somebody has to be brave enough to put their crappy first draft out there and nobody wants to do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe after someone dies, you know, they'll will it to their estate saying like, hey, look, you know, my grandchildren, if you're ever hard up for cash, publish my first draft. You but know. not unless you're really hard up for it. Because like, even then, it's like, oh, the thought of somebody, you know, it's like playing Speaking literary up. chicken. It's like, don't let anyone read it. You know, I hate to turn over this stone, but speaking of, wasn't Ghost at a Watchman basically that? That's true. Yeah. I mean, I thought about that. I was like, how, how does she feel about this? Right, right. When it came out, I remember a friend of mine turning me on to an article that she'd found about how she had submitted that book first, or that book existed in the world first, uh, before um, Mockingbird was written. And, and as such, it seemed to have preceded Mockingbird, and at the very least might have been that... Um, you know, it might have been her version of The Fountain. It might have been a, a novel that right. she ultimately rejected and called elements from to create Mockingbird. Because obviously, it's not like Mockingbird didn't do well. So if she really... <laughs> she never had to write again. Yeah, it wasn't just... She never... Yeah, wasn't that she... But she... If she really wanted to publish Ghost Out of Watchmen, she obviously could have. Right. It's not like the publisher's right. going to be like, you know what? We're, we think you're kind of one and done, Harper. Like, you might be... We're done with you. you know, like, obviously, they would have taken whatever she'd given Yes, them. yes. I'm sure her agent and publisher were quite eager to have more material from her. They're probably sitting on her yard in her yard with lawn chairs going, are you doing anything in there? Yeah. You know, um, and she did not give it to them. So I feel like that was a conscious choice on her part. And we're all just like, we don't care. We want it anyway. Yeah, yeah, so, it's our fault. It's our fault. I feel a little bad about it. But also, I do feel a little greedy because nobody's willing to give up these early drafts. And... So as someone who has finished a book and published it at the point when you wanted to publish mm -hmm. it, like what was the evolution? I mean, you're in the middle of it now with a second book, but how different was Kitchens of the Midwest at the point when it came out as a book from when you first started writing it? Boy, uh, there were a lot of chapters that did make the final book, but I cut those before I even submitted it to agents. The version that I sent out to agents when I was looking for an agent for the first time was um, pretty close to what you can buy in a store. 
-hmm. Yeah, that's not the case with my second book. My second book has changed significantly uh, over the last two and a half years. But I think that's more typical. I think I had one of those lightning in a bottle kind of situations with kitchens where I had a really simple conceit and narrative structure and I stuck with it. And although I overwrote, I wrote more than I needed to. Uh, I parroted a way to create the book that people can buy. Whereas my second book, I overwrote as well, but I'm also in this situation of having to add new material in the next few months and not simply um, subtract chapters. You know, even though with my second book, the, the volume is decreasing from 18 chapters to 10, um, of those 10 chapters, only six currently exist, so um, I've got to write four new ones. And of the six that currently exist, I need to uh, do some pretty heavy revisions on them. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a blessing to have two very different types of experiences. It, like it, in a way, it's a blessing to know that it's just not that easy, that my experience with kitchens in terms of writing the first draft in a year just pulling a few chapters out of it I thought were redundant and having it still work as a story that became agented and sold and published is, you know, that's a, it's not something I can, I can just do in my sleep. I, <laughs> I've got to work at this like everybody else, you know, and that's really good to know. And I'm glad to work on it. I feel like, ah, oh, man, I feel like, um, I really enjoy writing and I feel like I could work on this novel every day for the rest of my life. And I don't want to in a practical sense. Eventually I'd like to <laughs> write another story, write another book. But if I didn't have a due date, I could just probably sit at home and work on this novel, like, you know, money allowing, um, indefinitely. I mean, I, I might never be done with it in a sense that a lot of writers are never completely done with their work until someone forces them to be. I, I saw my friend Louise Miller post today. She's also on the same publisher, has the same editor. And she mentioned how um, she was making changes between her hardback and her soft cover. And before I did that, I didn't know people did that. I didn't know you could do that. But when I found out you, when I found out you could, oh boy, did I ever. I, That's like scandalous. Yeah, I made close to 40 changes between my hardcover and softcover in the, in the copy. Were they, some of them were, were they really some of them were, substantial? No, not really. I mean, uh, here and there, there were whole sentences switched out. It was mostly corrections, mostly minor things, tweaks here and there, a word here, a word there. But in a few cases, there were sentences pulled out, things that I had since realized, like Eva wouldn't say this. Eva wouldn't put it like this. Mm. Like, I'm going to rephrase that or just take it out altogether. But there were also errors. There were, like, straight-up errors, too, that were missed in the copy editing. But I think it's it, it makes me feel... Because sometimes I, I have this whole debate about at what point I want to read books. Because, obviously, I'm one of those people who has 2,000 books in the <laughs> house, you know, or whatever. And it's like, oh, my God, I don't need to buy another book for as long as I live, or at least for five years, if I did nothing but read. But... I still want them and I'm still like, I got to read them immediately. But then I'm like, well, do I want to wait? Do I want to get the heart back? Do I want to get the paperback? You know, what do I want to do? And now I'm like, oh, 
there's two versions. Yeah. Well, of some books, I'm sure. I mean, of mine, yes. I mean, two slightly different versions. But yeah. It's minor, but still. Yeah. Once or twice, someone's written me having detected a change. Someone said, hey, you said wow. this in the first book and you said this in the second. What's up with that? You know? Who are these people who notice this? That's kind of Yeah, amazing. that's cool. I'm, I'm all for it. It's probably the same people who are into Mount Weasels in the dictionary. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for it. I wish I wish I had the time. Well, you know, I, I do read books more than once a lot, but usually the same book. Like, I can't remember the last time I read a hardcover and then a softcover version of a book. And if I did, I certainly didn't read them close together enough to detect changes. Certainly not page by page next to each other. Yeah. You know, kind of, these people might be copy editors. I'm just they saying. might be, yeah. Or, they might have that kind of brain. Yeah. Or they might have read the hardcover and given it away to somebody and then got invited to a book club or their book club chose my book like two months later. And then they uh, borrowed a soft cover from someone or got a soft cover from the library or something and then had that opportunity to read the two versions back to back. You know? I feel like this is a central point for like a murder mystery or something. Mm. It's like, I read that book and I knew what happened, but it's like based around a hardcover, but then they read the softcover <laughs> and they realized that something has changed. Oh yeah, that's great. That's I love that. That's an that's an I'm like, this is an elaborate scenario you're coming up with. I'm like, we might have your third book like coming coming to fruition right before our eyes with this character who's who's reading books twice and noticing differences and mm-hmm. I feel like it's a woman. I don't know. She probably works she probably works in a library or she wishes she worked in a library. I'm not sure. Because she could be a librarian and maybe she's reading books on her break and she gets different versions. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know if um, like my large print version is different. I think the, I think oh. the audio book is slightly different. The audio book is based on the hardback, by the way, not the soft cover. So the audio book has right. many of the errors in it that I corrected for the soft cover. Uh, oh, does that drive you crazy? Um, no. No, I've decided it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good decision yeah, to, make, to just yeah. keep going forward. And although the so, foreign language versions have differences, a lot of them are idiomatic. Yeah, right. a lot of the soft cover versions are based on, I'm sorry, a lot of the um, non-English language versions are based on the soft cover, not the hard cover. Only the really early ones are based on the hard cover, like Dutch. Like the Dutch, if you, if you sell the... Wow. Uh, foreign language rights of a book to um, the Netherlands, they will publish it really quickly because pretty much everyone in the Netherlands reads English. So if they're going to make any money off the Dutch translation, it has to come out before the English version. So, oh, that's hilarious. so they really rush to get their versions out. That's amazing. Yeah. So that version is definitely based on the hardcover and the rest. They, I'd say the, um, the UK version the hard, their hardcover was based on my hardcover, but I got a chance to send them the softcover corrections for their softcover. So um, the uh, UK paperback is similar to the US paperback. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, Amazing. I, I, I had no idea. I don't mind the shop talk. Yeah. This is. No, I love the shop this talk. Was all, I'm fascinated by the shop this talk. This was all new to me in terms of even being able to change things. Like I asked someone sheepishly, like, can I make corrections? And they said, yeah, just don't go nuts. You know, I don't think they wanted a new chapter in the book or a different ending or something. But 
Right. Like, oh, guess yeah. what? We've got a whole new character. She's going to show up in chapter 12. You won't believe Yeah, it. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think they wanted that. But the... Uh... Actually, Eva's Eva's a twin. <laughs> oh, my God. Right, 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 right. Changes everything. Yeah, that's not Eva at the end. You're like, no, no, no. It's too yeah. much. Petunia's the chef. Yeah. yeah. yeah Eva died. Oh she died on a bus. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be like, what? Yeah, it'd be weird. Um but no, I feel like different. Yeah, I I felt like I relished the opportunity to make those changes because it drove me nuts knowing that there were errors in my hardback. It's tough. I mean, that's a tough thing about print. Is like it's once it's printed, it's printed. yeah. I know that's one of the reasons I love publishing on the web so much lately is that you can write the web editor of the journal or the magazine or the newspaper and say, oh hey, can you fix this? And ninety nine percent of the time they do, and they do it quickly. Um. I know a couple people whose books came out in hardback and they never got a paperback release. And I didn't know that was a thing either. I thought if your book came out in hardback, you were guaranteed a paperback release, but I guess not. And then, yeah, sometimes they only come out in paperback. And that's yeah, that's, that's, more common. that's more common than the only hardback. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I have a, another friend who just had her first hardback book come out this year. It was her fifth book. So she was really excited to have that hardback release and then have that high potential for a second paperback release afterwards. Uh, but yeah, I didn't know that the paperback release wasn't automatic with a hardback release. I guess it isn't, but I know it's amazing. It's amazing. The things that, that you think are just guaranteed. Like mm-hmm. I've had V.E. Schwab on the show who's written a ton, like 12 books before she's 30. And, mm-hmm. um, and she wrote two books of a, trilogy and they didn't let her write the third one huh, huh. Like, she like, was like oh just yeah. torture oh that's wild it's crazy i heard of that wow i know she was like oh my god it shut me down for a really long time i'm like fair enough yeah no kidding it's it's just surprising to me that you know it there are the elements that are about the creativity and they're about the decisions of like does this fit does this write for the book would eva say this you know mm-hmm. and then there's just like the publisher that's like nope we're not gonna do it sorry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And depending on the contract you have, you can't even do it on your own. Oh, I suppose, you know, yeah. Like if like, you like, write a book on this topic, it's our, you know, we're, we signed up for that. Sure, sure. And it's possible that if she sold the trilogy to them, that she couldn't even get uh, another publisher to publish that third book. You know, they own the rights to that right. third book in perpetuity, whether or not they want to publish it or not, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like the, the prisoner, the prisoner B-side. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So how did how are you? Um, I'm I'm very curious about the new book because it's it's sort of happening in real time mm-hmm. as we're talking. How are you researching about beer? Are you like always drinking beer while you're writing, or is it just sort of percolating in the background? <laughs> uh, I don't drink beer when I write. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I'm I'm on the other side of forty, so I need to be completely sober. So far, my research has largely comprised visiting breweries. And hopefully talking to the owner slash brewmaster and getting an idea of their operation, how long they've been around for, how large their staff is, what the steps are they employ in making a beer, what their more unusual beers are, how they came about, how they came about in their community, the amount of time it took for them to establish any kind of traction or profitability in their realm. I mean, breweries are a really interesting microcosm of American commerce because... As a friend of mine 
told me, uh, as someone I reconnected with as part of my research, a guy who runs a brewery supply company. So I'll say a caveat here that he probably likes saying this or wants to say this. But he told me that among companies or businesses you could start, uh, breweries among the least likely to fail. That it's very rare, uh. very, very rare for a brewery to go out of business. That even a bad brewery that makes mediocre beer can be kept alive by a captive audience of drinkers. The percentage goes down somewhat if it's a brew pub that serves food, if it's a restaurant, partially because of the failure rate of restaurants and the the rents, the staffing, the you know the you know the vicissitudes of having any kind of brick and mortar, especially one associated with food. So having a brew pub actually makes the fortunes of a brewery less likely. Uh, not yeah, not more. Um, but that said, I you know I know friends on all levels of brewing success, from uh, you know people who have yet to get a tap handle to people that kind of call their shots in terms of, well, I'm going to go here, not there, or I'm looking to break into this market and be in these specific restaurants or, you know, work with this concept or work with this chef. But that said, I mean, most of the people that are fairly successful at it now or our household names have been at it for quite a while. There aren't a lot of Johnny come lately's in the scene in terms of, oh, you've only been around a couple of years and you're, you're, you're in the supermarkets, you know. Um, a lot of what you see beer-wise in a supermarket is something that serious beer snobs were into or knew all about like 10 years ago or longer. I mean, they've, I suppose in a, in a sense, they've earned their, their right to be available widely to consumers. Many of them are now purchased by larger conglomerates, larger international uh, national alcohol concerns. Um, but that said... Uh, there's probably no more robust industry I can think of in terms of fealty to a location and specificity and like having the fingerprint and DNA of a terroir than a brewery in America. You could say that about you know wine in France, but like you can't grow wine in quite right. as many states in the U.S. yet. I mean, think uh, climate, no, climate change is helping take care of that. I actually oh I actually wrote a short story that will hopefully come out later this year where I talk about Idaho as an extremely robust uh, wine microclimate. But uh, beer, yeah, beer you, you can make anywhere. And because of that, a lot of places are. And it attracts tourists. It attracts locals. It puts a fingerprint on a community in terms of our beer comes from here. Like, come to you know, St. Cloud or, you know, <laughs> yeah. I know St. Cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, or Hastings, Minnesota, my hometown is getting a brewery this year. And, Very exciting. Yeah, and it'll be, it'll be a destination. It won't just be for locals, but it will especially be for locals. Uh, I mean, with a few exceptions, a lot of American beer, especially on the craft or microbrewery level, they, um, use some some level of local ingredients, some amount, some percentage of the beer's contents are are local. Some people go through the trouble of making the grain-to-bottle experience entirely local, if possible. And um, I don't know, there's this other brewery in Lino Lakes, Minnesota, called Hammerheart, 
that uses entirely non-local ingredients because they uh, make a Scandinavian style uh, menu of beers and they use those ingredients. Uh, but beer like that is the exception. I know there's a very large hop farm developing in the St. Cloud area uh, to help assuage some of the demand for local hops and hop and you know fresh hop varieties in Minnesota by Minnesota brewers. I think Minnesota right now is close to having more breweries than all of America had the year I was born. That's amazing. Yeah. Because I, I don't think of, of Minnesota necessarily. I mean, I think of it as, you know, an area that would be enthusiastic about it. But I was in Portland mm. this past weekend and we were laughing because we were staying at this hotel and they're like, this month is, you know, local beer month. And we're like, what month isn't local, local beer, beer month, month in right. Portland? Yeah. We're like, what independent brewery month? We're like, it's every month yeah. is that. Like you go to the movies and they're like, we have five beers you've never heard of. Here you go. Right. <laughs> Cider made out of fresh cherries. And we're like, this is amazing. Right, but, right, right. It's like going to it's like going to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories and them saying, It's snow week, you know. Or, yeah. And you're like, Yeah, <laughs> that's why we're yeah. here. Yeah, and, and Portland and the Pacific Northwest in general are regarded as kind of the oh, the bellwether for a lot of development and innovation in brewing by brewers I know you know they they look to that region as um, you know these are the people that are most likely to try something new that's going to work and there's such a yeah as you noted there's such a saturation of brewers there you wonder there can't possibly be room for one more and yet somehow there is you know uh, yeah I, I don't know the numbers on whether a brewery or how many breweries have gone out of business in the Portland area in the last 10 years. I don't know if any have. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that may be why it's international, you know, local brewing month every month. Right. It's just like, because they got more to share. Yeah, yeah. But I can see, you know, this whole, it is, it's like insular cultures like that are amazing sources for story right. because they have their own it almost makes me think of like Christopher Guest movies. You know, yeah, it's just like yeah. there's people who get real. And I keep hoping he'll do one about business conferences because to me, that one is like rife for the picking. Oh but I could see these things, these worlds where like things are very important and there's little mini celebrities and there's like, oh, that's so and so. And like outside of the world, you nobody has any idea what's going oh on. Oh my God, that's but, brilliant. If you don't write that story or novel, I will. I, I swear to God. <laughs> you well, we'll have to race books. for it now. Yeah, yeah, maybe one of your listeners will uh, will will run with it before either of us have the time to do it. I know uh, somebody's furiously writing. We haven't even put this episode out yet. We're still in this moment recording, but uh, it's somewhere in the ether. Somewhere so in the ether. Yeah. Conferences. Yeah. But I think it's true. I mean, it's anywhere. You know, I look at like the international beard and mustache championships. Right. Like, there's something in there. You know, and then brewing and and. I feel like wine is too romantic at this point, but it's, but the ones that are a little scrappy, they've got a little bit of a scrappiness to them. I can see just story growing up like crazy. That's another reason I love food is because within food, there, there are an awful lot of subcultures with the same kind of quirks and uh, jargon and uh, like, what's the word, you know, a snobbery for lack of a better term, you know, yeah, and like insider yeah, yeah. shorthand and, and, as, and all of that And as stuff. you pointed out earlier, too, like celebrities that are just celebrities within that realm. People that, like when they walk into a brewery, they're the shit. 
They walk across the street into, <laughs> but they walk across the street into the CVS. No one gives a fuck. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like they got to wait in line like everybody else. But in that brewery across the street, like, you know, they never have to spend a dime. You know, people are falling at their feet. You know, yeah, and there's so many subcultures within food. One of the ones I dabbled in a bit was the heirloom tomato subculture, and the chapter I wrote that had the most to do with heirloom tomatoes didn't make the book, but that was one realm that I stuck my toe into where I realized this is a pretty serious rabbit hole. And it's just as passionate as any music community I've been involved in. Because I've been a huge music fan and, you know, an amateurish musician and a DJ and uh, worked for radio stations, um, but, you know, throughout my life. Uh, and I've come to know those subcultures, but it's been a lot of fun for me to delve into food subcultures and find that same level of enthusiasm in myopia. Yes. I mean, I think there's something so fascinating about, about that. <laughs> so how do you, I mean, I could clearly go in a rabbit hole on this one for several hours, but as a, and we'll have to have you back when you, when you finish this one. Oh yeah, I know. I know. Where it went with the beer. Right, right. I'm like, come back with the beer so, when it's done. So what happened? And yeah. How, how I, did I, that I book came happened. out of this, you know? <laughs> what happened? I know. I love having, see, this is kind of like your B-sides. We're talking about it in advance. Exactly. And it's going it to be like, here's the book. But Exactly. It's like you're stopping in the studio know? during recording right now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. How do you know, I mean, it sounds like you knew the tomatoes were a rabbit hole. There's a little bit of the tomatoes in mm-hmm. there, but, but like, how do you make that break when you know, oh, I'm fascinated by this, but it doesn't belong in the book. Like, how do you handle that? Well, when I realized that I'm giving my reader an information overload and I'm including something in a story because I want to show off my knowledge or display the amount of facts that were really hard won through research or facts that I'm really enthusiastic about, but they don't actually do anything for the characters or the story. You know, as heartbreaking as it can be, I, I say, all right, this is the point where let these things go. I have so much it's yeah, I have so much in the current book that was exhaustively researched where I interviewed people over the phone, where I visited places, and those chapters will no longer be in the book in any form. Oh, no. I'm still going to thank those people in the acknowledgement. They took time out of their lives to talk to a novelist for, you know, no good reason on their part. You know, they got nothing out of it, uh, <laughs> as far as I know. But when a piece of research that you employ narratively is hard won, I think you find excuses to keep it in. And when I feel that my excuses are, but I, I, I fought so hard for that. That person was so hard to get on the phone or, you know, I drove to Nevada to see that, you know, like when that's the reason something is in a book and that, that reason alone, it's got to go. Yeah. It's, it makes me think of AJ Jacobs, the know-it-all, you know, and he read the entire encyclopedia cause he wanted to know everything. And he was insufferable at dinner parties because he was like, I want to talk about, you know, all this crap he was reading in the C volume right, right. that was completely disconnected. It's, it's, like, I worked hard to get this information, but it is. It's it's hard to let it go when it doesn't, when it's outside of the realm. It's like the stuff that happens outside of the realm of the book itself. Yeah, and it's hard not to share something that resonates with you, hoping that you'll form a connection with someone over it, that it will resonate with someone else. But 
if uh, you come across a piece of information or uncover it or through research collect it and it resonates with you and you can't give it relevance, if you can't give it context or meaning, if it's still just a piece of information you're relating, then it's meaningless. Like you, you have to couch it in something. So you can butcher a pig in the lawn and have ham. You know, <laughs> but it won't be identifiable as ham unless you do a few other things to it, you know, for the benefit of someone else. So when I look upon the research that I do, I try not to get too precious or sentimental about things. And that's, that gets easier as I get older. I mean, not just as I write more, but as I get older, you know, you just let things go quicker if they're not working. I mean, when I was younger, I mean, I think I was a little more precious about my ideas. And now I feel like, you know what, I'll make more. If, uh, like if I'm a chef and I spend, you know, hours like preparing a meal, you know, let's say, a, you know, a chicken, let's say I'm making a roast chicken, you know, with vegetables and, you know, baked potato. And I spend, um, all evening putting this together and, um, make one plate of it, you know, just one, just, just for myself. And on the way to the dining room table, I'm carrying the plate and I drop it. Well, I just have to make something else, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I, I feel that way all the time about things that I end up not using or things, uh, things I need to work past or work through to get to what's necessary in a, in a book. I feel like, you know what? The amount of time you spend doing something means nothing. What's the ultimate purpose of this story why are you telling this story why are you writing this book that's what's important you know and if uh, if you only thought you had one good idea go sit in a quiet place somewhere until you've got another one i i feel like i'll, I'll come up with more you know i don't know if all my ideas are good but i've got a lot of them <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll certainly try to use as many as i can but if I spend years working on one and it just doesn't come to fruition or it just doesn't, I just can't master it. then you know what? I've got to pull a Chabin and just work on something else. You do. But I think it sounds like this one is the current one is going to work out. Oh, I sure hope so. And kitchens of the Midwest worked out beautifully. So I think your track record is pretty good. so far. Yeah. I'm off to a good start, but we'll see. I mean, the, if I'm able to execute, this version of this book that I'm planning to execute, I think it'll be fine. But there's a lot of space between now and Thanksgiving when it's due. And yeah, I always find myself surprising myself when I'm writing too. I never outlined in the past because I would stray from it too rapidly and with too much alacrity. And unfortunately, I think for this novel to work, I really have to follow the outline. I really have to tamp down on my improvisation uh, my uh, impulse towards improvisation and constrain myself to <laughs> writing the story that makes sense. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back and report on how that goes. I'll do my best. But it was so great talking to you. And I, I know there are going to be many more questions that we, we get to answer when we hear about the book when it's finished. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. This is the only time I've actually spoken with someone at length about a book in process. I certainly didn't have the opportunity during kitchens because no one who I, no one knew who I was back then. <laughs> no podcast would have had me. We're going to have this writer that you, 
you know, no one's ever heard of, who doesn't have a book out, talk about the process of writing his debut novel, uh, pretty much doesn't happen. So this is the next. It's too yeah, bad. It is too bad. Got to seek those people it out. It would be kind of great. Yeah. If if I ever find someone who I know is writing a promising debut novel and it's not out yet, like I'll send them your way because it would be fun to send them be over. fun to have that in the archive. Like, what did you think about your debut novel before it came out? What did you think you were writing? You know? Yeah. It'd be amazing. Yeah, because I know what I think I'm writing here, and I won't mind being held to this standard, you know, down the line if it's a year or two years, whenever it comes out, if it comes out in any form close to what I'm writing now, and looking back on this interview and saying, oh, wow, I was, you know, I was closer than I thought, or I was further than I thought. Either way, you know, there's something to be learned from it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me and I know everyone's going to get something out of listening. I hope so. I, I, <laughs> uh, we'll see, huh? <laughs> uh, you're welcome. And thank you. This was a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you for listening to the secret library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue and Frederick Barry McWilliams jr. My tireless audio engineer to get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.